Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians. We are starting a new book this morning, Philippians being that book. And we are actually only going to look at verses 1 and 2 this morning, but actually half of my sermon this morning is the introduction, uh, because there are, as we move into a new book, there are some things that we, I think we need to understand as we go into uh, a book. I wish I'd actually said this before Acts, um, but it's been two and a half, three years since we started Acts, so y'all would have forgotten anyway uh, anything I said back then. Um, there, there are things we need to understand as we move through uh, even this short letter. Four chapters is all Philippians is. It's uh, a, a great book. We'll talk about some backgrounds for it, for it uh, in, in a moment. The first thing I want to talk about, though, the, 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 the first part of the introduction is uh, the purpose of preaching. Now, you're thinking, Michael, how in the world does that have anything to do with Philippians? Well, a couple of ways. One, all of Paul's letters were written to an oral-slash-aural society. Oral in that they expected to repeat things. That's how history got passed down. That's how the letters would have been passed around initially among the people. And you would sit around and, and you would listen. That's the oral part. Oral, oral. So uh, you would say it and they would hear it. Even the letters as they got to the churches, they wouldn't have passed out a copy of the letter to every church member. They would have stood up on the Lord's Day, whatever day that was, I mean, that was Sunday, but whatever day they met, it was the Lord's Day or they met at some other time during the week also, which most of the churches did at that time, they would have read this letter from Paul. And they probably would have read it over and over and over again so that people would gradually begin to memorize it. Paul uses throughout his writings mnemonic devices that would, uh, he uses alliteration, he uses assonance, he uses uh, word pictures, he uses things called a uh, chiasm, which I've talked about briefly a couple of times, I'm not going to get into this morning, but he uses all of these uh, uh, methods to help people understand because it was primarily a spoken, a, a heard lesson from the, uh, from the pastor that day. They didn't write down, they didn't take notes like a lot of y'all do, so uh, they had to hear it. So there's a, a great uh, understanding, uh, there's a need for us to understand the purpose of preaching and, and why it's so important, because they, that's how they got it. But we need to understand it because the next thing I'm going to talk about after the purpose of preaching relates to or flows from that purpose of preaching. So there are, there are a bunch of reasons uh, for preaching, a, a number of different purposes, but there are three main ones that I just want to cover briefly this morning. The first purpose of preaching is life transformation through biblical understanding. Life transformation through biblical understanding. I preach so that your life is changed by understanding what the Bible says. That's fairly self-explanatory. But it can't just stop there. It's not just that you listen to a sermon and then your life changes in conjunction with that sermon and we're done. That's only one of the purposes. The second purpose that I have this morning is equipping for the work of the kingdom, equipping the saints for the work of the kingdom. So when I preach a message, 
The purpose, one of the purposes is to transform your life, but that transformation should lead you to do the work of transforming through the power of the Holy Spirit by proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, other people's lives. That's what the purpose of the kingdom is. That's what we're supposed to be doing, is reaching out, going out, and telling people about Jesus. But again, it can't just be you do that based on this hour on Sunday morning. So the third purpose of preaching is discipleship that leads to self-led biblical study. So one of the things I hope that I show in my preaching is how to, even if I don't explicitly state it, hopefully it's one of those things that's caught if not taught, is how to go about reading the scripture. Understanding, like this, in a little bit, I'm going to talk about the background of Philippians. I'm going to talk about where Paul was and when he did it and the church in Philippi. Those things matter to understanding this text better. You understand the four chapters of Philippians better by understanding Acts uh, chapter 16, uh, verses 11 and following. You, because you get something, you learn something about the church. You also learn something about it when you read, I believe it's 2 Corinthians, where he talks about being in Macedonia and talks about the faith of the, the churches in Macedonia. That's Philippi, that's the Philippians, and some other churches in that area. So those are the three purposes for preaching. One of the things I'm supposed to do in a, in a, as a pastor is teach Scripture, but teach it for life transformation, teach it for equipping, and teach it so that it leads to self-led discipleship so you then can go and read the Bible this week and maybe read Philippians, maybe go back and reread Acts, maybe read uh, 2 Corinthians to put some of these pieces together so that if you weren't in here for the, uh, you weren't listening for the connect, to the Connect group earlier, like Etta had when she reads Romans chapter 8 uh, that she taught this morning, verses 12 through 24-ish, um, immediately what comes to mind is Titus chapter 2 because she's been reading other places and she's making those connections in Scripture. We read this passage in Philippians and it echoes some things we knew from the Old Testament. That's one of the main one of the big things that the churches that Paul wrote to got when they stood up, when, when the pastor of that church stood up and read Paul's letter. And in Philippians, he makes various Old, Old Testament quotations without ever saying, so it is written, or it is written in the Scripture, or Scripture says. In some of his letters, he says that. And usually when he says that, he is correcting some bad teaching. He's telling them, you know what scripture says, and yet you're teaching something else. Don't do that. Like in Galatians, he does that a lot because he's trying to correct the Judaizers. In Philippians, he doesn't say, you know scripture says this, so stop doing it. He just quotes it, and it's supposed to be an encouragement, an exhortation. Uh, the, the fancy word we use for Philippians it is, is that it is hortatory exhortation, H-O-R-T-A, you hear uh, exhortation, exhortatory, uh, from encouragement, exhortation, we use that word, we don't use hortatory very often. So it's an encouragement uh, letter, it's actually a friendship letter, we'll talk about that in a minute. But he doesn't have to quote 
Actually, he never has to quote, or he never has to say, you know this is a quote from Scripture, because the people who he was writing to knew their Old Testament Scripture, most of them, a lot of them. Even in a very Roman city like Philippi, it began with God-fearers. And remember, in these New Testament churches, you know what Scripture they preached from? The Old Testament. When you became a Christian... The Old Testament became your scripture. They didn't have the letters until they did, the letters of Paul. They didn't have the Gospels until the 70s A.D. They didn't have uh, the Bible as we have it. So they already had learned if they had been a believer any length of time, but certainly if they were Jewish before they were a believer, they already had these scriptures in mind. So here's my point. When Paul quotes a scripture, whether he says... I'm quoting this, you know scripture says, or whatever, or whether he doesn't, the people who were listening knew immediately. It was usually something that was familiar enough to them that they had either memorized it or it had been taught to them enough and taught to them regularly enough. Why do you think the Old Testament says with the uh, Shema in Deuteronomy, repeat this to your children? Over and over, so it becomes a part of who they are. We read. We don't listen to something over and over and over until we learn it, unless it's a song. We do that sometimes. But as far as Scripture goes, we don't listen to it until we learn it. We read it until we learn it. They listened to it until they learned it. But the point was the same, to be able to take Scripture from various places, and when we read something new or read something again, we make those connections. So, as I preach, that's why I bring passages from the Old Testament or I reference other passages in the New Testament to show those connections, all in order to teach, to exhort, and to get you to self-disciple. That's not the only thing you're supposed to do. We're supposed to disciple each other. This is a part of discipleship, but it is not the responsibility of the church to make you a stronger believing Christian and more knowledgeable of the word. It is your responsibility to get in God's word and read it. So that's the purpose of preaching. This naturally flows into the next part of what I'm going to say. Foundational passages. Michael, what are those? I don't know if I coined this term or if somebody else came up with it. Couldn't tell you, uh, but it's the term that I use, foundational passages. There are passages in Scripture that are neither commands nor steps to follow, but they are informational and they serve to give strength to the verses of application. Sadly, they're usually the verses we skim over. Like the beginning of a letter, verses 1 and 2, for example, of chapter 1 in Philippians. Or the final verses in some of Paul's letters when he says, Greet so-and-so, and and tell so-and-so this, and say hey to, and make sure my coat gets here, and bring me the parchments, Timothy. And at the end of Philippians, we have a little uh, tell Euodia and Syntyche to stop fighting. It's basically what he says. Calls them out in the letter. That had to be an awkward Sunday morning. Uh, when he called them out by name and told them get, to stop fighting. But we, we skim over those verses because, oh, they, they're not telling me to do anything. They are foundational passages. They are passages that mean something to us. Now, I'm going to give two examples of what foundational passages do for us. Uh, one's a visual and one is oral, auditory. The first one is uh, the tree of life at Animal Kingdom in Disney World. 
Uh, it's an impressive structure. They, they had this idea for it to, to be the centerpiece of, uh, of Animal Kingdom. Every park at Disney World has a centerpiece. Cinderella Castle at Magic Kingdom. Uh, the geodesic dome at uh, Epcot. Uh, for a while, it was the sorcerer's hat at Hollywood Studios. I don't know what they consider it now. Maybe the, uh, the water tower with the ears, I think. Uh, I've forgotten what the, they call that. And at Magic Kingdom was the Tree of Life. Not the Tree of Life like we are talking about. What would I say? Oh, Animal Kingdom. Tree of Life at Animal Kingdom. But the problem was Disney Imagineers, that's what they called their engineers, Imagineers, we're stumped by how to get this thing to work. You've got hurricanes. Uh, you've got uh, just, just the size of it. How are you going to support this thing? And so they began looking around for ways to do that. Just to give you some dimensions, uh, this next picture is kind of a drawing of it. It's not to scale. It's 14 stories tall. It's 50 feet wide at the base. Uh, it can withstand 145 mile per hour winds. At least that's what it want. They wanted it to be able to do. Underneath the, there's a theater that holds 450 people. And Imagineers were struggling. How do we get this thing to withstand the hurricanes? How do we get it to support its own weight and not be completely destroyed in a hard wind? Well, they came up with this idea. This next picture. They modified a fixed offshore oil rig. That's what they built the tree of life around. Of course, they modified it. They anchored it to the ground. It's not in water, but that's basically the structure of the tree of life underneath. And then you can see on the next picture, it's a, 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 a picture of them building it. And you can kind of see that structure. They, they spread it out at the bottom, but the rest of it's that oil rig. Because oil rigs offshore, especially in Florida, in that area, and our oil rigs off our coast are built to withstand hurricanes. That's the whole, I mean, that's, that's one of the main things they want them to be able to do. It is the nuts and bolts. It's the foundation of the tree of life that gives it strength. And you then the next picture is, is that again, the tree of life. And you can, now you can envision that oil rig being uh, built inside, and that's concrete, that's not wood, that's a concrete exterior, the leaves are plastic, I'll give you some of those technical aspects in just a minute. That's one example, let me give you the second example, M uh, music or piano playing is a very similar, is something we can use similarly to understand what a foundation allows you to do. This next picture is uh, Art Tatum. He was a, a jazz pianist for in the 20s and 30s, and here's his music. He's playing Tiger Rag here, Louisiana folks. Thank you. 
seconds more. That was one person. I know it sounds like four hands on that piano, but that was one hand in the top part and one hand on the bottom. Now, uh, a friend of ours that went to college with Etta, he, is a, uh, he has his doctorate in piano, and, and I used this analogy, this example years ago, and asked him about uh, a, a foundation, what kind of foundation you need. And I quoted him, and he said it was okay. He said, a classical foundation is the best beginning point to play jazz piano well. Well, it turns out Art Tatum studied classical piano before he moved to jazz. He had that foundation, and Art Tatum, as you could probably tell, is widely considered the fastest, most accurate piano player ever. And I cannot, there's no, I think there, I found one video of him, because like I said, he's 20s and 30s when he played. There's one video, and it's, it wasn't great, so I didn't bother using it, and it's the internet, so who knows if it's accurate or not. It's phenomenal. But it was that jazz, uh, that uh, classical foundation that taught him the techniques, taught him, I, when I took piano lessons, I hated having to play you know, if you've ever taken piano lessons, they put the, the fingerings above the notes as you begin. And even some of the harder pieces, when you're not even a beginner, will give you some hints. This is how you need to play it in order to hit these notes. Your, your thumb crosses over, uh, under and plays so that your other fingers can make it up there, and then you cross over as you come down. And, and those techniques are what allowed him to play that way. So the oil rig under the tree of life allows for that 450-seat theater. It allows for 102,014-inch plastic leaves that flutter in the wind on 8,000 branches, and the trunk has over 300 animal carvings in concrete on it, all because it has the proper foundation of that retro or that refitted oil rig. The, the classical ed education for Art Tatum allows for the accuracy of his playing, but also for the flourish that we get from jazz. He, he learned the, the basic rhythms, he learned standards, he learned a foundation, so that when it was time to jazz it up, he could, and becomes the greatest jazz pianist ever. Foundational passages in the Bible... As we move through the Bible, we are going to have foundation, the goal is rather, foundation and application. Sometimes we're going to be reading a passage and studying a passage and spending time on a passage that folks are going to say, Michael, why aren't you focusing on that passage? That's not telling me anything to do this week. You're right, it's not. It is a foundational passage. Some days we're going to get the one, two, three application. Go home and do this based on what we read. Other Sundays, it's going to be foundational knowledge of Jesus or Scripture or uh, something else 
that may not have obvious application, but will set your faith on solid footing. One of the things I've tried to do in the past, and, and I, since I had never shown you this illustration before, I've not done it here, but at previous churches, I would say, okay, y'all, this is an Art Tatum moment. This is a, a tree of life moment. This is a foundational passage that we need to work through and understand so that when we place the application verses on top of it, our foundation is strong. Uh, with Don Duberville sitting here, I could have mentioned how important it is for the pilings of these bridges that go over our rivers and lakes in this area to be set on a solid foundation so that the span is safe. We can have a beautiful span made of the best concrete and the best steel, but if those pilings are set on sand and the concrete down there is crumbling, they are not going to, that, that span is not going to do us any good. The foundation is as important as the application. So, we may move through some verses that we say are boring or unnecessary, but they're not. Did God put it in here? Do we believe all Scripture is God-breathed? All Scripture is for teaching and training and righteousness and that sort of thing? Then, then the greeting, verses 1 and 2, and the, the, the farewell at the end of chapter 4 are all important. Okay, now to Philippians. Carol, are we having a little trouble with the screen moving forward? If not, I just saw it flashing, so, okay, I just saw it flashing, so I wasn't sure. All right, nope, we're good there. Uh, so, now, as we move into Philippians, like I said, about half of this was going to be that introduction, and I, want there, I wanted us to get ready. It was foundational, okay, the first part of this message was foundational. Now, let's get into some foundational parts about Philippians. Biblical backgrounds. It's actually a class you take in seminary, biblical backgrounds. You have to learn maps and stuff. Um, and when you take biblical backgrounds. But we need to have the background of Philippians. So that's our next section here, biblical backgrounds. So what's the background of Philippians? Well, I already said that Philippians goes back to Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15. Now, we covered that, right? Uh, that would have been probably a year and a half ago, maybe a year ago, based on where it is. But turn back there to Acts chapter 16, Verses 11 through 15. Now, this came, uh, the, the, the church in Philippi came as a direct result of the Macedonian call on Paul and Silas. At this point, he's dropped Barnabas, he's picked up Silas. They moved north into Asia, what we would call Turkey now. And we read that they wanted to go southwest into Ephesus, and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them, so they wanted to go north into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus said, don't. So the only way they could go was toward the coast, uh, up in that northeast, uh, northwest corner of Turkey, to, toward Troas. And when they got there, a Macedonian, he, uh, Paul had a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come over to Macedonia. And when they got there, turns out the Macedonian man was really a Macedonian woman uh, by the name of Lydia. And you can read verse, uh, the beginning of chapter 16 tells us that he picks up Timothy. And we begin with the evangelization of Europe. Paul has now left Asia and moved into Europe. It's a whole new world. 
Aladdin fans, a, a new fantastic point of view that he gets here in uh, Greece. Macedonia was northern Greece. Goes through a, a few towns, and he gets to Philippi, verse 11. It says, we put out to sea from Troas, we sailed straight for Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony in a leading city of the district of Macedonia. Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great's daddy, is the one who founded this city in Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside to the city gate by the river. They think they had found the exact spot that Lydia was there praying with a few other folks, a few other women, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia. Let me stop there for just a second. God-fearing means she was not Jewish. Lydia, she has a Greek name. She was a Greek woman who was following, trusting, believing in, praying to the Jewish God, Yahweh. She was a convert to Judaism. She was a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, and she, and she was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And the church at Philippi began. Just a handful of, of ladies. Um, for some reason... Uh, we have the idea that there were three ladies there. I don't know if that's just because three is always a convenient number in the Bible. But it was Lydia and some other ladies that were there. And that is the beginning of that church. That would have been somewhere around 40, early 40s, mid-40s A.D., 42 to 45 A.D. And that's how it began. Then we see uh, a little further down that uh, Paul casts a demon out of a slave girl. That gets him thrown in prison. And in prison, they're singing hymns. He and Silas are singing songs, praise and worship. They're, they're just letting it go. There's an earthquake. The chains fall off. The doors open. The jailer wakes up and sees it, knows that they've escaped. He's about to kill himself. And they say, Hope, nope, don't do that. We're still here. Everybody, you haven't lost a single person. And he says, What must I do to be saved? And they say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. And if your family believes also, they will be saved. And he does, and the family's baptized. And so now we have Lydia and her family and probably her employees. We have very likely this slave girl became a, uh, a believer after this, may have been a part of the church. You have this jailer. So you've got some city officials, you've got some business folks, and you've got some slaves that have become believers. And that is the nucleus of the church in Philippi that grows over the years. This is clearly, as you read Philippians and the other letters, it's clearly Paul's favorite church. I don't know if he's supposed to have a favorite church or not, but, but Philippi, Philippi is it. The Philippian church is his favorite. His letter has a different tone than any other. It's actually a friendship letter, like I said earlier, a hortatory uh, friendship letter, a, a friendship letter of encouragement and exhortation. He wrote it from prison in Rome. We ended Acts just a few weeks ago, and we left Paul in prison knowing we talked about he will probably die there, be executed in Rome um, around 62, 63 A.D. So he writes this letter to the Philippians around 61 A.D. or so from house arrest in Rome. And the, the word that is used most in 
acts is joy. The most used Greek word in acts is joy. He uses that more than any other. He also uses the word fellowship. But when we translate that word fellowship, we today say fellowship is having ice cream sundaes in the gym and sitting around shooting the breeze. For Paul, fellowship actually meant partnership. He wasn't talking about hanging out together. He was talking about doing the work of the gospel together. That was fellowship for Paul. And that's what he is going to talk about in uh, this letter to the Philippians. The, the title of this series of, uh, through Philippians is The Joy of Partnership. That's what I've t- entitled the, uh, the entire series. And this morning, the title is Slaves and Saints. Now, one thing I want to do before we get into verses 1 and 2, I want us to hear Philippians the way that first church would have heard it. I can't do this with every every letter as we move through them at various times. Romans is too long probably to read. Don't know. I might change my mind when we get there someday. But four chapters, I want to read Philippians to you. So I want you to put your Bibles down. I know that's a weird thing for a preacher to say on Sunday morning. But at home, in your cars, wherever you are, put your Bibles down. Don't read your, look at your Bibles. Don't close your eyes because if you're on your couch, you'll go to sleep. Um, but just hear the way the church in Philippi heard. If Lydia is still alive, is that, if that jailer is still alive, if that f- slave girl is still allowed to attend, still around there, Imagine hearing Paul. He's probably visited the church a couple of more times after founding it. We have hints of that in Corinthians. So he's probably visited it two or three times over the past 20 years. He started it in 42. He's writing it in 62, thereabout. And in in between, he visited it once or twice, maybe three times. Imagine hearing Paul. Knowing Paul, I was here when he came, he he witnessed to me, and hearing these words from him. So listen as I read Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right of me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. 
To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I, I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he, himself, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross." For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every name will bow in heaven and on, and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I, don't, I didn't run or labor for nothing, but even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. 
But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I consider it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need, since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager to send him, so that you may rejoice again when you see him, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and hold people like him in honor, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Now that I've already reached the goal, or am all, not, rather, not that I am all, have already reached the goal, or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it, because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, Forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I, I have abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. I think it carries so much weight to hear one of his letters that way. And, and you hear echoes. Work out your salvation. Why did I say at the beginning? Read your Bible. Discipleship. You, you hear connections. You hear things in Philippians that, he, that Etta talked about in our Connect group on Romans this morning. You, you hear those ex- echoes. Those are the things that he would have understood. He, he, Paul would have gotten, as we read one letter and then read the next, he would have understood, yes, you should hear those things that I said in all these letters. This should be a reminder. If I said it ten times, then I think you probably ought to get it. The Holy Spirit told me to say this ten different times. Slaves and saints this morning. He begins the letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to point out the slaves, and I want to point out the saints, and I want to point out grace and peace. First, slaves. Some scriptures say servants, and and that is an accurate translation, but the servants were slaves. And to be a slave, the idea of slavery, uh, certainly to slaves, was just as repugnant then as it is now. Nobody wanted to be a slave. We we, We should cringe at the word slavery, that anyone could own another person. And, and it should, and that's why I like using the word slave rather than servant. 
for a couple of things. One, because Paul here is willingly putting himself in the position of a slave to Christ Jesus. He says to uh, Paul and uh, he says Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul was an apostle. The other disciples, though they knew Jesus, Paul was an apostle as one born out of time, he said. But he was just as much an apostle as Peter, uh, Paul, uh, Peter, James, John, those guys. He was an apostle, and he understood that his apostleship, his, his, his um, position didn't matter. It did not matter who he was. He was still a slave to Christ, as is every other believer. So, this, in this little phrase, Paul and Timothy, servants, slaves of Christ Jesus, we see equal calling. Equal calling. Every one of us is called to be a slave to Christ. If we decide we're not going to do what God says, we are a slave, a servant in rebellion against our owner. We have been bought with a price. We are not our own. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell us that we get to take and make, take responsibility and make decisions for ourselves. We are not ours. We are God's. We are slaves to Christ Jesus. And that calling is equal on all of us. Whether you are a believer of just the last couple of months or have been a believer for 70 of your 76 years, 80 of your 86 years, or 90 of your 96 years, you are as much a slave of Christ as anyone else. It is an equal calling on everyone. We all serve Christ first, more than anybody else. He's going he's gonna to talk about their citizenship. Philip, in Philippi, when it became a Roman colony in 200 and something BC, everybody there became a Roman citizen overnight. And that carried huge advantages. That, to be a Roman citizen in Rome, we see Paul, right? He got to appeal to his citizenship. In Philippi, he's going to be beaten and thrown in jail. And then after the earthquake and after the jailer uh, uh, repents and, and is saved, they come to him, and, and, and they, you know, they're going to try to get him again. And he says, you've already beaten and jailed a Roman citizen without a trial. And they're like, oh, 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 could you leave, please? Just shh, go away. I mean, it, it had its benefits. And he tells them, that's not your citizenship. As important as that is, as great as that is, as, as uh, vital as it is for various reasons, that's not your home. That's not the important citizenship. Your citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. Your slavery, your servitude, is not to Rome, not to where you live, but to Christ. Secondly, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. As I said earlier, we know that was a businesswoman or women, a jailer and his family, possibly a slave girl. But he goes on to say the pastors, yeah, the pastors are saints. Just want to throw that out there. But let's not stop. The deacons are saints too. He calls them all saints. But if we, you know, we just read the letter. We get to the end where he talks about Caesar's household. The believers, the saints in Caesar's household. He is in Rome. 
He is a prisoner of Caesar because he's appealed to Caesar. It's the imperial guard, the praetorian guard that is in charge of uh, watching him. They all know the reason he's in jail. But in his ministry in Rome, he has seen the conversion of people related to Nero. Some of Nero's family became Christians. Caesar's household sounds rather innocuous. Nero's cousins, Nero's kids, that's closer to home. And they are all saints. Every one of them. From the slave girl to Nero's household. Because we have equal status in our position as believers. We are all slaves. We have equal calling. But that slavery, we talked about it this morning in Romans. Y'all, I didn't plan this. But we talked about our equal status, our equal inheritance. We all become children of God upon our conversion. We are adopted into the family. We get everything Jesus gets and Etta's right. It's not fair. We get everything Jesus gets? Yeah. Because we have equal status. Lydia by the riverside, the slave girl who had the demon thrown out of her, provided she became a believer, the jailer all the way up to Caesar's household, even pastors and deacons have the same status in the family of God. And that status is leveled. Nobody higher up. We have no chief slaves. We have no uh, subordinate slaves. The calling is equal. We have no more important slaves. We have no less important slaves. The status is equal. It doesn't matter who you are. And he goes on to say, after to all the saints, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace, he says, to all of you. And here we have equal results. We all get the same grace. We all get the same peace. The, the prisoner, the, the uh, thief on the cross got the same grace and peace in his last few moment, moments of life that any one of us gets who became a Christian as a, as a child and dies at a ripe old age. The same grace and peace. Grace and peace to you all Equal results from our belief in Christ Jesus. Do you, do you hear the foundation here? I, I can't tell you to go be a slave, to go be a saint, to, to go be, uh, to, to, to see the results. I mean, I, I can. There may be some, there is some application here we're going to get to in just a second. But, but this is just an understanding of who we are as a believer that will fuel, that will serve as a foundation to what we need to be and do as believers. Equal calling, equal status, and equal results. So you're asking maybe, what should I do? Well, I'll, I do have some what you should do. One, read your Bible. Read your Bible for transformation, not just for knowledge or points. And I don't know who you think is keeping score, but you think somebody is. We're not, we're not doing it for that. We are reading for transformation. We are reading to let the words become who we are. Secondly, what you need to do is lay a scriptural foundation for your faith. When doubts come, it should be scripture that, that mentally, that in your heart, responds to your doubts. 
when questions come, when, when you're challenged by life, circumstances, or unbelievers, it should be Scripture that is your response. It should be reflex because you have spent the time in Scripture. You have the foundation. When the hurricane comes on your tree of life of faith, it should be that oil rig that is holding you up, that found strong foundation, the nuts and bolts of your faith that allow you to stand up against it. When, the, uh, when, when there is a flourish needed in your faith, when you need to add, not add something to your faith, but when your faith needs to shine and, and needs to have a trill up the, a, a glissando up the piano, whatever, when you are needing to make that, hit a particular chord in your life, know that it is that foundation of classical music like Art Tatum had that allows you to build on it. You, can, you know what's underneath so you can put what's necessary on top. Lay a foundation. And then thirdly, know your place. You are a holy slave. Holy, set apart. That's what saint means, set apart, a holy slave slave. You are loved. You are redeemed. You are perfected, or at least being perfected, already not yet. It's a process. You're being sanctified, but your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You are saved. It is guaranteed, but you are also a slave. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. And it doesn't matter how long or what position, how long you've been a believer or what position you hold, you are a holy slave. Live like it. Now, the reality is some of you may not be a member of the household of God. Some of you who are listening online may never have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You, you need your riverside experience like Lydia had in Acts 16. You need to understand that God's design was perfect. Creation groans because we messed up God's design. Sin stepped in and creation suffered. It was cursed because of it. God's design was for you to be in relationship with him. Sin messed that up and led to a broken life, a broken world, a broken situation, a broken heart, a broken marriage, a broken relationship. Just everything is messed up because of sin. And the fix for that brokenness is the gospel of Jesus Christ that says, Jesus died. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, taking your sins, taking your, your punishment. He was buried, and three days later, he rose from the grave. And that proved that if he said he could forgive sins and he said he could conquer death, well, we can't see the forgiveness of sins, but we can certainly see the conquering of death. We can trust in what he said. And so we place our trust in him. We repent of our sin and we believe in that gospel. We believe in Jesus Christ. We place our faith in him to save us. And we become his slave we become his servant and we are made holy and we spend our life pursuing that design that God has for our life we are intending to recover that we we make every day a certainty that we are following him did you hear it when I read the letter let this mind be also in you we'll get there we'll we'll hear it go back and read that this week 
all of Philippians. Maybe read it a couple of times so that you're ready when we move through it. But this morning, maybe you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. You can do it right there where you're sitting. It's as simple as repenting, admitting you're a sinner. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know that. I want to turn from my sin. I, but I, I don't have the strength to do it. I need your Holy Spirit to do it for me. So I turn from that. I trust you, Jesus, to save me, to, to act on my belief. Cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And Lord, I want to give you my life and be yours. It's as simple as that. And it can be a, a prayer as simple as that to move you through that process if that's what you need. And we'd love to hear about that. If you'd like to comment on Facebook, send us an email here at the church. Let us know of your decision. If you have questions, please comment on there. Let us know uh, what, you're, what the Lord is doing for you. Praise team, y'all come on up. But let us hear how God is working on your heart. I'm going to close in prayer, and we're going to sing one more song. And I pray that God will continue to work on you. If, if you are resisting him, that you will find salvation in him this morning. God, 